morning we'll be back in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to cover uh, a whole 10 verses this morning. I know we're going to cover a lot of ground, if you can bear with me, we can get through that much. But I really figured that uh, if you look at this chapter and you look at the next couple chapters, or really next chapter, that uh, the second half of this I didn't want to rush through, and I felt would be a good uh, introduction into what happens later in chapter 20. Uh, so just a reminder, uh, Revelation, John, the Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. Uh, he's given, uh, he's brought to heaven and shown what will happen to the end of the world. What will happen to the end of the world? He's shown, sorry, I'm a little distracted. He's given a message to the seven churches, not only the seven specific churches, but the seven church ages. And like we looked at, I believe that kind of can even speak to seven types of churches that you might be in uh, today. Uh, but it's really judgment on the nations and it's a last ditch effort to get the world to repent uh, we see the past, present, and future revealed, the end revealed, the church revealed, heaven revealed, but most importantly, Jesus revealed. And we're going to see a little bit of that uh, today and next time we're in Revelation. That the whole point of the whole Bible is that Jesus would be revealed to us, right? There's a lot of great information. There's a lot of studying that can be done. Uh, there's history. There's prophecy. There's assurance that it's real. 66 books, 40-something authors, whatever it was, right? But the whole point of it is to know God, is to see Jesus for who he really is. If we come to the scriptures and we miss out on Jesus, I think we need to go back to the scriptures. Because anytime we get into a Bible study, even somehow in the depths of Leviticus or Numbers, right, there's still a way for us to see Jesus through it, right? It may not be so simple at first or on the page as... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see Jesus walking around. But the point of God giving us his word is that we might know him. It's not that we would be self-righteous, but that we would know the righteous one. And I hope that this morning, I pray that this morning, that as we get into Revelation, we see Jesus revealed. And, and most of all, that he would become more and more revealed in our lives to others as well. If we keep the light of him covered under a bushel... You know, what point is that? Great. Our bushel is lit up. Our house is lit up. Great. But it needs to go further than that. It needs to shine brighter than that. And we need not cover it. And that's going to be more and more evident in these last days. You know, the world wants us to cover it, but we're, let's not cover it. But previously we saw a world that's in, in allegiance with a world leader, uh, with a mark, with worship. You know, if you pay attention to the news this week, you got a glimpse of what the future might look like <laughs> through that rousing speech by uh, the, the puppet in charge. But many judgments, plagues, disasters, war, famine, death, the worst things the world has ever seen, more than the world has ever seen, I believe even combined, come on the world in this time, in this short time period. We saw martyrs of Jesus that in these last days you believe in Jesus. It's basically a death sentence for you. We also see that those, despite all these things coming on them, the world does not repent. People who have taken the mark, who worship the beast, they don't repent. In fact, they just double down and blaspheme God the worse it gets. We looked at Babylon, both the, the world and economic system, but it's a, a corrupted world system, uh, both immoral sexually and spiritually immoral. That it was through and through corrupt, through and through evil, and that this entity ends up taking over the world and ruling the world. 
We saw last week that any remaining people of God somehow, if there was a few of these tribulation saints left who hadn't been martyred, that God calls them out. Now, does, is there another rapture? Does God pull them aside before these things happen? I don't know, but God calls them out. They're at least to get out of uh, that capital city. But a quick note before we move on, just to touch on Babylon real quick before we get into better things. I was reading this week, it just came across, you know, I'm on the news, I'm reading different sites, I'm paying attention to what both sides, are, all sides are saying, and trying to take it with a grain of salt and see how they're trying to manipulate even just by the things that they post. But there was uh, something about the UN, and it explained uh, how they have this sanctuary slash meditation room, uh, how even from the 1920s they had this, I guess, you know, the UN really didn't come around it's modern time to World War II. There was a League of Nations and all that. Uh, but there was this, uh, in the 20s, there was this a society that began to publish, and they were called the Lucis Press. And the Lucis is for Lucifer. And it was all this stuff about New Age Enlightenment, stuff that really came about in the 60s with the illicit drug use, with spirituality, with New Ageism. And I wanted to point this one thing out because they talk about the age of Aquarius, right? And I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole. But Wikipedia, part of the definition of that was a common position expressed by many astrologers uh, sees the age of Aquarius at that time when humanity takes control of the earth and its own destiny as its rightful heritage. Well, that's true. The earth is our rightful heritage, but we gave it away, right? And there's no way for us to get it back unless the Lord gives it back to us. And with the destiny of humanity being the revelation of truth and expansion of consciousness, and that some people will experience mental enlightenment in advance of others, and therefore be recognized as the new leaders of the world. That these people who were into this stuff in the 20s were basically Satanists. They've come about and taken hold in society. And in the 60s, it was all about those, those revolutions, about immorality and new ageism, getting rid of Christianity and allowing these other spiritualities to come in. Well, the people who were involved in these things in the 60s and 70s, right, are the same people who ended up being CEOs and senators and presidents and world leaders. So it's no, it's no surprise that this great reset, that new ageism and Satanism are all related because it's the same spirit behind them. And I just wanted to touch on that. And anecdotally, a friend shared with me at work that uh, there was a coworker by them gleefully sharing about how she went to a friend's wedding. Oh, that sounds great. A wedding, right? Well, it was a Satanist wedding. And this person was talking to someone else at work. And the other person at work was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's interesting. And my friend was like, you know, overhearing it. And she's thinking like, you know, to the guy who was talking to this person, it's okay if you say that's weird and that's whack. Like, you don't have to embrace everything. But is that not the spirit of the world? And she was espousing. She's not a believer. You know, she's seeking the Lord. But she was espousing about how, how weird is it that this has become normal? To talk about this openly and excitedly. And other people might have nothing to do with it, think it was really interesting and amazing and wonderful. And just what a, what a tell of society that we live in today. But thankfully... As we look in today, all these, look today, and we saw last time, all this stuff is coming to an end, and it's going to be a smoky end. Uh, so, Lord, we ask that as we get into your word, that you would, God, speak to us, that, God, you would also get the glory uh, in us, 
and through us and through your word and your sacrifice and your truth. But God, we pray that for those people who went to that wedding, we pray for those people who would have that service, that they would come to know you. God, may your truth go out and just convict people, uh, God, before it's too late. But Lord, in that, we also see your truth revealed in these things. Somehow we see your glory too, because it's your word fulfilled that people would go after these things. And we see how simply and easily it's going to be for the world to turn uh, after a false Messiah, God, before you return. So we pray that you find us ready and waiting uh, for your return. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take the first four verses, voices, four verses here together this morning in chapter 19. It says, After these things, I, that's John speaking, heard a great sound, oops, heard a great sound of many people in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous, sorry, they're shouting. So I need to go back and shout this. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again, they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. I think we stop there. Amen, Alleluia, right? If we take those in and consider what they're talking about, what they're saying, what they're rejoicing in, what they're shouting for, that all these voices in heaven are shouting for these things. But John says that after these things, you know, if we step back and look at, uh, like we talked about Babylon, uh, mystery Babylon and Babylon the Great. We look at the seven last plagues. We look at all the other judgments of Revelation, all the events of future history for us. And John says after these things, because again, like we talked about, the Revelation zooms in and out of these events. And well, now it's shifting. Now it's transitioning. These things have happened. These things are done. And this is what happens next. So we've kind of reached the next chapter, so to speak, uh, in Revelation. Uh, and that's happened several times in Revelation. But we, had, um, you know, we're shifting to the end of that period. If we're talking about the end of tribulation, this is the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is about to be over. And remember, to us, to in time, if you can think about it, if you can't, don't worry about it. But time is linear. That we are flowing through time. We can't go forwards. We can't go backwards. Well, I mean, we do go forwards. And every second we're going forwards. But we can't jump forward, right? But to eternity time is this finite thing that they can look in on and see on uh, and God can but he sees the sound of many people in heaven remember the Bible says that people from every tribe nation and tongue are going to be there it's not just one group of people it's all groups of people from out all of history are saying this throughout all of history have experienced some level of hardship experienced some level of persecution experienced the joys of god and also seen wickedness prevail on the earth and wickedness is still prevailing but all these people of all times of all peoples throughout all of history are in heaven and not that heaven is at capacity right and if you ever go into a movie theater or a restaurant you know it's a little placard that says capacity 250 from the fire marshal right that there's only a safe amount that can fit in the restaurant before it's unsafe anymore Heaven doesn't have one of those placards. Heaven doesn't have a sign that says 144,000 and that's it. Heaven would welcome every single soul of all of history into it. 
And in fact, as we'll see later, it has welcomed everyone, but not everyone has decided to go. But even though it's not at capacity, heaven is full. There's not empty chairs in heaven, so to speak, where we think, oh man, how depressing that is that heaven is full. You know, it's not like the deceptive political speeches where they zoom in on the front row and the place looks full, but it's only seven people there. It's not like that. Heaven is full and it's full of people who want to be there. Full of people who are absolutely 100% in love with God and with all of their being. They're shouting. They're praising. They're worshiping. And I wonder, is that us? Are we in love with God like that? I think it, when we get to heaven, certainly, in a sense, there's no choice, right? It's all taken away. Um, not that choice is taken away, but, you know, all the, the birds of life are taken away and we see things fully. But is there any reason why we shouldn't be the same way now as we will be then? Because they were shouting. I had to go back and I had to read that properly. I had to shout it <laughs> properly because sometimes we read the Bible and go, eh, the Lord did this, and uh, uh, uh. And it's not like that. We make it boring. We take something that is the most is the living word of God and we don't want it to be too alive, so we dull it down. We read it in the Old English. And I like the Old King James. I like it. But I'm not going to necessarily read the Old King James to a bunch of kids. It's going to be way too boring. And why do we do that? I don't think that's the Spirit of God. I think that could be something else. And I'm not saying we should be out of control because they weren't out of control. The Bible talks about being in control of the spirit, right? Self-control. They weren't being disruptive and people take that and they get in their flesh and try and worship and it's not. It detracts from God. It goes the other way. But when worshiping, and I mean in song, I mean in preaching, I mean in living, I mean in fellowship, and not that we do it perfectly all the time. We're, we're human, right? But is the overall flavor of it, the overall note of it, the overall source of it, coming from the depths of our being, coming from the seat of our souls, our heart, right? We say Jesus is the Lord of our heart, that he's beyond the throne of our heart. Is it coming from that deepest place? Or have we put his throne in the guest room of our hearts? Have we put the throne on the balcony where only other people can see it and hear it, but it's not really at the source of us? Some people get excited about a sports event. My wife can tell when I'm watching F1 downstairs because I'm like, yeah, go! Oh, oh no, they crashed! I'm all into it. Do you get that excited about it? I don't expect you guys to get that excited about racing. That's my thing. Maybe it's a new blouse. Oh, look at the, look at the frill and the color and the fabric. I don't know. Do you get as excited about you would uh, about a political argument? Does the heat of the political argument Match the fervor of your burning for the Lord. Does this worship, does this praise, does this anthem rise from our very core and encompass our entire being to a loving God? Like, do we really love God? I know we say that. It's easy to say that. And even as I say that, I go, you know what? I, I can probably count on, I probably can't count how many things in my life that I don't love God with. 
But I think our core wants to love God and wants to love God more in those things. And when we worship, are we barely in heaven when we worship? Hallelujah. When is this over? I want to go play golf. I'm hungry. Hallelujah. And we're 99% on earth and only 1% in heaven because the words coming out of our mouth match the words of heaven. Or are instead, are we barely here on earth? We forget that people are around us. We know that God is before us and inside us and around us. We are looking at him face to face, so to speak, in the spirit and worshiping him and praising him and in love with him and experiences his warmth, so to speak. And then we realize, oh, there's people around us and we have to get back into that and forget. Who cares what was around us, right? Are we barely there or are we barely here? Because they're all there. People all the time. Sorry, I missed something. With that, and I'm not saying you need to go out in the street and shout at the grocery store, Hey, I love God! Do you love God? Do you want to love God? Some people do that. And I'm sure that there's a place for that. I wouldn't say it's all the time, though. Because remember, it has to be in control. But do our lives shout that truth? Whether we're saying it out loud or not? When someone looking at our lives, do they go, Oh, man! It's so holy. Ow. If they're wicked. Or do they have to really look really close and see that we're a Christian? And then they find out we go to church. They're like, you go to church? You? Because what we say can be deceiving both to us and to others. Like we were watching last night, actually. What we want others to think about us it's sometimes what we project, right? But it's not always true. Do the actions of our lives speak the things of God? The truth of his goodness. Like I said, can others tell? Even when we're not shouting. Our kids, all the time when we're out, and our kids are around people for a period of time, especially in the world at a restaurant or a boat tour, people will comment, oh, your kids are so well behaved. It's so amazing. They were so good. And I say, see, kids, look, people notice. People see. And I don't train them. I don't say, when we're out here on this boat trip, you better behave. I mean, if they're acting up, I might say that. I might shout. But they know how to behave. They've been taught how not to be wild. And that there's a place to be wild. There's 10 acres to be wild around here all the time. And sometimes when they're wild, I kick them out there. But others can tell. And can the same be said for us as the children of God? The people go to God and say, <laughs> I don't know what they say, but are they happy? I think a lot of times people get turned off to God because of the behavior of the children of God. And maybe repent if that's the case. But they say true and right, they shout, true and righteous are his judgments. Do we believe that? I know we believe the Bible. I know we come to it. I'm not necessarily speaking specifically to us, but maybe it's something we need to look a little deeper on, be a little more introspective about. But do we believe that? The things that God says in his word, the things that God says about his word, about himself, about sin, about history, about the future, the things called out as right and wrong, good and evil, are we 100% on board with that? 
When we come to the Bible, do we go, eh, I don't know. That's kind of tough. I don't know if that applies to a modern world. It was a different time 2,000 years ago. They had sheep. And honestly, I believe that Revelation, and part of what I like about it, is that it puts us to the test on that. We read the whole Bible. We read stories of the past. We see Jesus on earth. We have the epistles and how the church should be and how we should live as Christians. And then all of a sudden, we're confronted with Revelation. If we skipped over some of the interesting passages in James and Genesis and elsewhere that kind of give us this little glimpse into deeper stuff in Daniel and Ezekiel, and we somehow miss that, we get to Revelation, we get to the end of it, we've got 21, is it 21 or 22 chapters? 22 chapters of it. Of stuff in our face that puts us to the test. Look at the strange things it talks about. Look at the weird things it predicts. And if we don't believe every word of this, why do we believe any word of it? The entire thing. Because if the rest of the word is true, it means revelation is true. And if revelation is true, it means the rest of the word is true. And I'm going to quote uh, someone named Andy Stanley. And he said it earlier this year on the internet. The, and I partially agree. I see what he's saying here, but at the same time, it's, it's way off. It says, The Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of the 66 ancient documents. He's, he's already saying it doesn't matter if it's accurate or not, and they're ancient. He's kind of pushing them off as ancient. And he says, It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And I get that. The whole point of all this is Jesus, right? But, John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And true, Andy Stanley, Jesus is the crux of it all. But if we can't believe the Bible, if we push the Bible off as some ancient text, we'll never know who Jesus truly is. Jesus isn't a feeling, he isn't a memory, and if, what he's, if we believe what we believe about him because of the Bible, if any part of the Bible is untrue and inaccurate, and just some ancient document, we can't believe anything about Jesus. And we need to throw it all out. Because if the scriptures are 100% accurate about Jesus, we can trust them. And we can only trust them if they're 100% accurate. Because they're one and the same. So, do we believe it all? They're ancient, but they're present. They're ancient, but they're eternal. Do we believe in a literal creation in six days? I'll stir up the pot with that one. Guess what? Jesus did. Moses did. God did. You know the one who didn't believe that? Darwin. So, who do we believe? Darwin or Jesus? Exodus 20, God giving the Ten Commandments. God giving the Ten Commandments says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Literal days. Just like it says in Genesis, literal days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. And you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, cattle, strangers within your gates. For in six literal days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. 
the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God could have done it in a split second. God doesn't need a billion years to do it. God did it in six days to be an example to us. Where do we get the week from? We get the week from this. The stars and sun and moon don't give us weeks. The stars and sun and moon give us months and years and seasons, right? And tides, but they don't give us weeks. God gives us the week. And God did it on purpose in six days for a reason, as a symbol. And we're not going to get into all the symbols of that this morning. But his judgments are true and righteous. And God judged it right to make things in six days. And that's not a salvation issue. If you don't believe that, that's fine. As long as you believe in Jesus, you'll get there. You're missing out. It's a lot easier. It's a lot safer. It's a lot more of a blessing to just go, yep, God says six days. I don't care what anyone else says. They weren't there. But they say, because he has judged the great prostitute and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants, that his judgment is true for these martyrs because they've been waiting like we saw in the earlier chapters and now it's fulfilled. This system, this world system that went after them, God has avenged. God has brought their blood back on them. You know, and this is kind of complicated if we dig into it, but it's also simple at the same time. I think the same thing with creation, right? God will protect us. Scripture is clear on that. God will provide for us. The scripture is clear in his heart for that. But sometimes that same God who protects and provides will also allow you to go through great hardship, even persecution, needs that overtake us even to the point of death. But the point is, it's for a time that even I think we need to separate, in a sense, our physical needs from our spiritual needs. That what is our greatest need of all to go to heaven and to know God and probably in the reverse order. Our greatest need is not that our bills are always paid. Our greatest need is not always that we had food to eat. Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Foxes have a, a den. I don't. Paul was naked, abandoned, shipwrecked, left for dead. But he never said, God left me for dead, I'm giving up. He said, no, I'm going back in there. Because Paul knew his real need, and that was for a savior. And sometimes I think in our spoiledness, otherwise. And again, not that we should purposely, a friend was telling me a story about how there was this guy who wanted so badly to go to seminary that he was going to seminary, and it was costing his, causing his children to go hungry. And they had to like rebuke him and they wanted to help him. But sometimes we get so myopic over these things, we miss the greater thing and hurt people through it. And that's not God. God would say, you don't need to go to seminary. Where God guides, God provides, right? But at the same time, sometimes God may not, pro may provi may not provide in the way you expect to go where he's asking you to go. And sometimes he says, leave everything behind and come and follow me. But these folks will be avenged. They will be avenged. And God is the one who does that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But know that in the midst of all that, like the psalm says, he collects our tears in a bottle. That he doesn't do it heartlessly. He does it in his wisdom and his power and his greatness. And it's an opportunity for us to give him glory in it. And it's not meant to be easy, guys. It's not supposed to be easy when you lose a loved one. It's not supposed to be easy when you go through hard things. Remember, we go through these things in part because the world is sinful. The world is fallen. But it's all an opportunity to give glory to God. 
And will we? Will we shout it? Or will we not? Because that help doesn't always come when we want it. They were being killed for these seven years. And I think it's important, again, if the Bible is accurate, the Bible is not only our window into who God is, it's not only his voice and his word, but it's also something to level set us and give us a perspective and say, and a model, an example to follow. And when we look back at the prophets, we look back at the saints, how were their lives like? What did they live for? What did they do? When these things happen to them. Well they said hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And we should live the same. But they say her smoke rises forever and ever. And this is, a, this is one that I think we could easily skip over. But I think it might say a little something to us. Because why would the smoke of the city rise forever and ever? Why would this memory of the world. This memory of this evil system even in smoke, be remembered, right? Well, if we look back, there was a place called Gehenna. Uh, it was a name for hell, but it was the trash heap outside of the city. People would bring their trash, their refuse out there and burn it, and it would smell and go up, and you could see, well, that's where the dump was. And Jesus talks about Matthew 8, 12, and 25, 30, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth outside this city, outside this feast, of people who were unbelieving Jews and unbelieving and hell and heaven are separate, right? They can't coexist. But I think somehow, if for any reason, if for any time, for season for this, right? If that the smoke is there, it's not to bring dread and sadness. We have all the smoke outside us today, and it lets us know that there's a forest fire somewhere, and there's always this nervousness. How long is the smoke going to be here? Where is this fire? Is anyone being hurt? Is it going to spread and eventually come to our home? There's this dread with the smoke. But this smoke that we're seeing here that all of heaven sees and rejoices over, it doesn't bring dread and sadness and grief and memory of the world, remembrance of the evils we did. But instead, it's a sign of God's righteousness and God's victory. That there's a war going on throughout all of history and this war is coming to close and we see the smoke rising from the city of the enemy, from the world system of the enemy, and we can finally rejoice and find full rejoicing in it. That we're going into, after this, the feast period. Babylon's destroyed. We're about to see the enemy defeated fully in 2021. The earthly uh, reign of Jesus set up for a thousand years. Finally, a new heaven and new earth created. But if we remember, Satan's rebellion started in heaven. And I think this is a heavenly reminder of sorts. A heavenly rejoicing in seeing our enemy finally, totally, completely vanquished the chapter shifts and it goes back to the elders back to the throne back to the living creatures and, and they say amen hallelujah they see the smoke they've shouted and they say amen hallelujah from around the throne that god's will is done at least for the world system he's about to he has to destroy it. You know, Satan is the one who destroys, loves to steal, kill, and destroy. And believe me, when God destroys something, it's always to put something better in his place. 
When Satan destroys something, it's to put something worse in his place. When God destroys, it's to bring good. Just like that forest fire outside, it's burning the trees. It's burning the forest. But guess what? It's making way for new life. It's burning away overgrowth, stuff that wasn't cleaned up, stuff that's been dead and there forever and has no life in it anymore. It burns all that up, and new life comes up in its place. The soil is made rich again. Room and sunlight are brought in that new trees can grow up. That somehow, even in that fire, God's design can be seen. And they praise God because of it. And this is a bit of a side note. I hope that you can hang on just for a second with me. I think that the principle here is related to that of closure, of absolution, of resolve. Sort of like the death penalty. We know that this has been finished. This has been done. This has been dealt with. And it's been dealt with righteously and from God's throne, from God's presence. And if you think about it, the victims of violent crime, of serious crime, perhaps even rape, definitely a murder of a loved one, the victims who are left behind. I believe seeing that murderer put to death, knowing that this person will never be free, knowing that they aren't alive, knowing that they aren't walking around somewhere, eating their three square meals a day, writing and corresponding with the outside world, still having some kind of a life when your life has been robbed and they still get to live, knowing that this person going to the death penalty has paid the ultimate price for their crime and sin, showing that their life is not more valuable than the life that they took, puts a righteous judgment on them. And it shows that the victim's life has value. Not that the life intrinsically of the murderer doesn't have value, but that they threw that away when they took someone else's life. They forfeited their own life, their own freedom, when they robbed someone else of their own. When they took a father from a family, a mother from a family, a brother, a sister, someone doing good in society, someone who didn't deserve it, so to speak. And again, not that the criminal can't be redeemed, not that there's not a period for justice and for this person to come to know the Lord and to do it in a respectful and, uh, way. But at the same time, there needs to be a penalty on earth for these things. You do the crime, you do the time. And not that it shouldn't be a death penalty for a little thing or cutting off your hand for stealing like they do in Muslim countries. That's too much. There's no redemption there. But when you take away someone's life, You've done something that only God has power to do and you need to be reckoning for it. There needs to be a reckoning for that. That they should not be allowed to live another day when they took that for someone else. And that, I believe, as outlined in God's scripture, is a righteous judgment. Let's go on to verse 5 through 8. And again, coming to God's word, is it God's word that shapes our own personal beliefs and policies? Or do we try and get God's word to fit in with our own? I, I, the goal is, I hope, for all of us, and I hope I'm even being honest with myself, that when I come to the scripture, I let it change my perspective on things and how I perceive things. Let's go on, verse 5 through 8. It says, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. Then I, John, heard something like the sound of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. It was granted her to be arrayed in fine white linen, clean and white. 
and fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The voice from the throne says, praise our God. Well, there's only one person on the throne, and that's God. This is the Trinity calling out worship to the Father. No, you might think, oh, that's a little prideful. He's saying worship himself, but it's not. God is holy, and God is the one directing it here, that it's all about him. Those who serve him and those who fear him, like we looked at Proverbs, the respect and authority of children to a father, of an authority figure, right? But God had all the authority to do this, and he's the only one who's worthy, right? Sometimes we say God is worthy, and that's true, but I believe if we unpack that a little bit, he's more than worthy. He's not like he's the most worthy, right? He's the only one worthy. In fact, I think if we can think about it this way, he is worthy. He is what it means to be worthy. No one else can have that title. No one else deserves any kind of heavenly worship, right? We can commend someone on doing a good job and praise them for it but not to be lifted up in, in a place like God in our lives. But the sound of all these people and angels is loud and it's powerful. And our worship should be loud and powerful too. Not overcoming, not that it all needs to be certain types of instruments or even amplified, but it needs to be loud spiritually. It needs to be direct to God, worshiping God. And it, it bothers me sometimes that doctrinally sound churches have awful worship. And doctrinally unsound churches somehow have great worship. I think somehow it's because the doctrinally sound ones have somehow missed the passion for God, missed that we need to practice and be good and that somehow it's okay to be free and not be so completely stoic all the time. And the ones that aren't so doctrinally sound are a little bit easier for them to be free and loving and worship God, even though they miss a lot of the truth of him, they at least get some of the heart right. But they say the Lord God omnipotent, that he has power and he can do anything. That he has all power. Omnipotent means all power. Do we believe that? We said it before. Do we pray for things that are wild and crazy? For people to be resurrected if they're about to die. For people to be healed of a terminal illness. For things to happen that have no way in our strength of happening. Do we pray in belief that if God wants it to happen, it will happen, that he can do it? Not that he will do it, right? Sometimes we pray, we ask, and we ask and miss because we ask for ourselves. But do we believe that he can do all these things? Do we come to him with a prayer of faith that he's omnipotent? And I believe when we do, we're going to do the same thing that they do. They say, let us be glad and rejoice. You know, the time here with the, the city burning and all being judged that the time now is for rejoicing. The time now, the final judgments are coming, Jesus is coming back, he's setting up his kingdom, we can finally rejoice. We can rejoice ahead of time for the victory to come, but when we come out of that time of presence and praise and worship of God and we come back to, for lack of a better term, reality, the earth, right? And we have to deal with the weight of sin and evil, there's a different kind of rejoicing. It's a different kind of rejoicing when your team gets a goal during the playoffs than it is when they've got the, the, the trophy in their hands. And we need to look forward to that. We need to rejoice now and then. 
the joy of that weekend, the joy of vacation, like I said, the joy of victory, the end of Satan and sin's reign has come. Not that it ever truly reigned. It was always a false reign. We knew it. it Satan's not omnipotent. God, God allows these things to happen. But we need to give him glory and give him glory for all of these things. Like that lyric today, um, may the lamb receive his reward in me. May the lamb receive all the glory. Does he receive that glory when we sing? Does he receive that glory in our very being? That he died for you and me. He bled every last drop for you and me. What does he receive out of our lives from that? Our lives, if we're a little potted plant, and God's pouring water on it, and God's putting fertilizer on it, and God's put his blood on it, well, it should grow, right? It should bear fruit, right? And do our lives do the same? We see here, this is the marriage feast. And if we look through the Bible, we see different feasts, the parable, the wedding feast Jesus talked about at the Last Supper. That Jesus said he wouldn't drink from the fruit of the vine again until heaven. Um, you know, Joseph, he has a feast for his family and reveals who he truly is to them. Uh, but we're not seeing the eating yet. You know, uh, if you're going to see the heading in, in the section of Scripture, it says the marriage supper of the Lamb, but you read these ten verses and there's no table, there's no food brought out, there's no waiters, right? Uh, but again, this is a part of the ceremony, that the true feast is, they're getting ready, the guests are assembled, everyone's been called out of the world, everyone's been called to heaven to worship God. The only people left remaining on the earth are those getting ready to be destroyed. And so the feast is ready and getting ready to watch. But this is the first part of the ceremony. They're sitting down there waiting. You know, they've got fork and knife in hand. They're banging on the table, right? Like, it's starting. It's beginning. We're excited. Let's go. And it says that the bride has made herself ready. The church has made itself ready. And yes, God's in us and God needs to be the one to do it by his spirit but it's our responsibility to get dressed right when Ash and I got married if people were forcing her to get dressed dragging her in there saying come on let's go would I really think she wanted to marry me would I really think she was in love with me at all no so why do we have to force or be forced to do the things of God why do we have to be dragged to church? Why do we have to be told to listen? I don't know. It's our flesh. But it happens to us all. I'm not trying to condemn. It happens to everybody. But again, the core of our lives, is it really pointed to Jesus? And I think if it's lacking, we've forgotten what he's done for us. We've forgotten who he is, that we're his bride. And he paid a price for us. And are we clothed? Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. And we need to put on the new person, our new clothing, our new garments, and these garments are fine linen. And I love how Revelation just like, no bones about it, just explains it right there. It doesn't make it dark, a dark saying. It says, fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
right? That these garments of the priests that they wore was fine white linen. Not of heavy labor. Not the type of clothes that I wear out to the shop that have knee pads that are thick, that I sweat in, that I don't mind getting dirty. That I, don't, that I sweat in all the time. And that should be our deeds for God. And how do we view serving him? Is it joyous? We might sweat physically, right? I was helping a friend. He's building out uh, a new building that they got for their church. And they have a lot of work to do. And I remember how much it was work for us in New York. And so I want to go help him. So I helped him. And hopefully I'll have another chance to do so. But we sweat. But it was a joyous time. We fellowship. We talked. We got things going. So excited for them. And when we do things for the Lord, it should be from that same place, from that spirit, from that place of who God is and what he did for us. And it should be easy to do spiritually. It might be super hard physically to do, but spiritually it should be very simple and straightforward. You know what? I'm going to follow God and I'm going to do it whatever it takes. And when we put it on, do we revel in it? Think about my wife putting on her dress, trying, oh, I love it, it's so white, and it's the most special dress of, of her life. We still have it. She's put it on for the kids a couple times. I think I had a suit. I don't even know what suit it was, where it was, that I rented, I forget. But her dress was special. And that should be the same for us. When we're wearing that fine linen, we should, yes, this is what I want to wear for God. I want to get dressed. I want to put on more fancy things for him. I want to do my spiritual hair better for him. And I'm losing my hair, so that's going to be easier for me. Let's go on, John 9, 10. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I may have just renamed the message to worship God right there. I liked what was there before, but I feel like this is a little better. Worship God. So John is commanded to write. And he's supposed to write it all, right? He's supposed to write everything he sees in Revelation. And I don't think, I think you experience something like this, there's no way you're going you're gonna to remember it all. It's going to be visceral. But they don't want John to miss this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know that many are called, few are chosen, that everyone is invited, like the parable, but not everyone attends. But I believe that the fact that everyone is given a chance, everyone throughout all of history, I mean, even Satan had a chance, he was worship leader, he chose to run away from it, right? It's a blessing from heaven. And the fact that any of us is going to this marriage supper is that blessing from heaven. And do we remember that? So let's remember that and let's find rejoicing in that. That we're going to heaven, guys. That Jesus paid it all. That he is all in all. That his truth is truth. And everything else, it doesn't matter. Right? There's some way to it. My kids matter. My life matters. I need to be a good witness and a good employee, and all these things matter to some degree, but at the end of it all, the only thing that matters is God. The underlying thing is that his truth is truth, and that's the strength to keep going. But he says, these are the true sayings of God. And in fact, revelation is just that. Sorry, I got my allergies going on this morning. Is that it's what it's all leading up to. It's all revealed here. The entire Bible, in a sense, culminates here in revelation. And do we let our lives hinge on that? 
Do we let our lives hinge on the true sayings of God? Or are they the true sayings of a celebrity? Or what we think are the true sayings? The, the sayings of a, of a think tank, the sayings of a college, the things of even maybe a parent, a well-meaning parent, or even what we say ourselves and believe ourselves. These are the true sayings of God, and we need to make our whole lives hang on this. And John gets caught up here. These true sayings of God, seeing future history, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's overwhelming, the sounds, the smells, the sights. And he loses sight of the fact, and I think this gives hope to the rest of us, because John's gotten through 19 chapters of this, and now he gets rebuked a little bit. In heaven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know how that works, but man. John, I, I, even then, he's, I think he's probably the only rebuke he's ever had in his entire life. But he gets caught up here and he loses sight that as believers, we're all servants of Jesus. Now, there's not one servant who's greater than another in relation to one another. There's not one servant of God who's worthy of more honor than one another. The angels, we're made a little bit below the angels physically, right? They have more power than us in a spiritual realm and eternal realm, but we have more power to them spiritually because we're God's, you know, that's a whole other study. But we don't worship angels. We worship God. And we don't honor others like that, right? The Catholics would honor Mary, the Blessed Virgin of Heaven. And some vision came to this guy in Mexico saying that she was Mary. And, well, Mary ain't coming back, guys. That's a demonic vision. And even if so, we're not to worship her. Even if God did make her show up, she should be pointing to Jesus, not herself as the Queen of Heaven. She was just another servant like the rest of us. God chose her to be the servant to bring the baby into the world. Just like he uses you and me to bring the truth of that baby into the world today. And I believe we see that in our own hearts, our own lives, even the church. Because the church is made up of us, right? And we're closing here in a second. But we exalt people unnecessarily. And again, not that we commend, don't commend people, not that uh, you know, people who serve the word of God are worthy of a double honor. You know, that we don't pay people who work in the church or that a workman's not worthy of his wages, right? But sometimes I think we think them worthy of it. That they truly serve God. That there's people, and I, this is true, I see people who serve God and go, there's a brother or sister. And I honor them in my heart because I'm like, yeah, this, this is my kinswoman, right? This is my kinsman. They love God. I want to be more like them because I see them truly loving God and serving God no matter what the world says. And that's good. Paul says to do that. But God's favor and love is just as much on us as it is anyone else. And Billy Graham, while God used him big time, before God isn't any more important than you or I. He may have, I'm sure he does, has a lot more reward than you or I. Or at least me. But he doesn't mean he's any more important or any more worthy of praise than us. None of us are worthy of praise. It is God who deserves that praise. And I think the biggest problem today in the church is that we exalt those within the kingdom of God because of their physical talent, because they look good, because they speak in our minds to be good. They're an eloquent speaker. Their English is great. They're polished. They have nice clothes on. Their service is so organized. And we exalt them because of that talent. But they don't have that deep spiritual quality that sober love of god and love of his word 
which is the most important quality. And so we begin to idolize these people, how great they sound. They're the ones who are going to lead worship at our church because they sound good. But are their lives holy? Do they lift up the things of God in their own lives? And not that they don't love God, but there might be someone who doesn't sing as good. Who doesn't, or maybe they do, but they don't get all the attention. And they'll lead you into the presence of God more than this person. You know, there's different movements and different groups, and there's certain people who I just can't listen to. And yet, out of the same movement, I'll listen to someone else who worships God. Because in a sense, and I could be wrong, but I get the sense that they love God. I can hear it in the way they're singing versus the other person, which kind of grates and feels like they just love hearing themselves speak. But when we do that, these people, as we look in the Christian music industry specifically, they begin to promote things that are unholy. They've been promoted to a place because of their gift and talent, but they're lacking spiritually. And they begin to promote things that are spiritual poison. And the church takes it on as gospel truth because this person's become famous for being good at something physically. And not that we shouldn't pray for these people, not that they can't change, not that it couldn't happen to any one of us. But it puts a false light on who God is and what he's about. And it puts a stain on the church and on her dress. So we need to worship God, as this servant says. We're to worship him personally, collectively. We're not to worship each other. We're not to worship each other's gifts, each other's talents and possessions. And we need to put our focus back on Jesus, to worship him. And when we come together to worship, they need to be the best worship artists in the world, but we're not looking at them. We're letting their music and their heart and their song lift us to Jesus. Even if they're doing it for themselves, we let it point us to Jesus. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We can, make a whole, we can make a whole subject on that. But he's the ultimate prophet. That all of these prophecies are fulfilled in him. All these things we read in the Bible about the future are fun, but the end of it all should always be Jesus. Just like every time we come to the Word, the end of it should always be Jesus. When we come to church... The end of that preaching should be Jesus. It should lead us closer to him. Are we led closer to being a good person? Or are we led closer to the great person? The only person? The true person? When we worship, was it just a good song? Or did we enter the presence of God? And that's what concerns me the most about the church today. Is that all we want? A nice building? A quaint conversation? A really put together concert experience? a really polished presentation and pastor who looks the part in our mind? Because I see the complete opposite in Scripture. I see fishermen who are smelly, stinky, can't put together two sentences right, and they're the ones God chooses. That Paul says, even though he was totally educated, one of the smartest guys ever back then, one of the most spiritually pro proficient Bible studiers, he said, I'd rather not use any advanced word, I don't want to use any technique of man, I'm just going to preach the gospel simply. And not that there's anything wrong with having a building. Not that there's anything wrong with dressing nice. Not that there's anything wrong with being good at what you do as far as speaking or, or worshiping. But is that the qualifier for who we believe and who we trust in the scriptures? Or is it the word of God? Is it Jesus Christ manifested through it, through the preaching? Because just like the Spirit brings us to worship here, that all of history and all of the Bible points to Jesus. 
And he points us to the Father. He shows us who the Father is. And the Spirit and the Word of God give perfect witness of that unity. And all this is true. He's coming back and will come to pass. But like I said, that if we believe one part of this, we have to believe it all. And if we believe it all and we see it all, we see God for who He truly is. And God, thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You that You are true and that it all points to You. May our lives point to You. May we trust every word and of Your word because it is your word. It's not our word. We didn't make it up. These guys wrote it down, but it's evident that it was your word through them. And let us cling and hold on to that and, and trust you through it and know you better through it. Come soon, we pray. God, be with those in leadership in high exalted places and draw them close to you. And may we pray for them. They've gotten uh, there for one reason or another and may you use them in it. And God, help us uh, just not even worry about others, but worry about ourselves in a sense and may ourselves be on the right path with you. We love you, God. Come back soon, we pray, and we look forward to rejoicing at the supper. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until